0: plushcare.com weight loss. Hey guys, this is Gabby Douglas. If you have an active lifestyle like me, hydration is key. That's why I love the hydration watermelon smoothie from Smoothie King. Blended with whole fruits, coconut water, and more electrolytes than some of the leading sports drinks. Hydration watermelon is the cleaner way to hydrate with no artificial colors, flavors, or preservatives. So you can recover and perform at your peak ability during the summer heat. Order online or through the app for pickup or delivery. Smoothie King, rule the day. Let's go! walks fairly down the street With the pool I low Ain't no sound but the sound of speed Machine guns ready to go Are you ready? Hey, are you ready for this? Are you hanging on the edge of your seat? Out of the doorway. to
2: Hello, my name is Dave Hanreddy, and there will be no popcorn. Welcome to the debut episode of No Encore Music Podcast's music and movies side project, essentially. So, uh, if you're just coming to this, if this is the first time you've heard my voice... I would like you to very much subscribe to the No Encore podcast on all your podcast apps. It's a weekly music digest. I assume everyone listening to this probably knows that, but we'll see how it goes. Essentially, why are we doing this project? Because I wanted to kind of add some bonus content to the show. I wanted to have some episodes that were more evergreen than the ones that we do every week because we are kind of beholden to what happens over the course of a week, whether it's news or an album review or songs that have come out and so on and so forth. So um, some of my favorite podcasts are film podcasts, and they deal with stuff that you can just kind of fire up anytime you want to. It felt like a natural thing for us to kind of look into doing. And so the very first episode of this show... We'll focus on a much-heralded recent film. Now, the whole point of No Popcorn, it has to have a musical connection. Whether that means it's a biopic, as will be the case here, or a musical, as is kind of the case here, or has an incredibly tenuous link to music whatsoever. So if an actor in the film is a musician and they're in it for like five seconds, that can count. So uh, I'm looking for suggestions. I've had a few already. Hit me up on Twitter at HanreadyDave or at show. The hope is to do at least one of these a month, you know, schedule, committing. It was tough to even get this one out in time. But here we are, and it's good timing because the Oscars took place last night. Now, here to help me through this is a former guest of No Encore, a former film editor and a man who shares many filmic interests of mine, even though we disagree quite a lot, but that's, uh, that's okay. It's Dave Higgins.
1: It's been a while. It's good to be back, Dave. Welcome back, man.
2: Welcome back. I'm glad you came in. Thank you so much. So I guess, real quick, uh, so the film is Bohemian Rhapsody. That's what we're doing. It is. The uh, four-time Academy Award-winning Bohemian Rhapsody, directed by Brian Singer slash Dexter Fletcher, and starring the Oscar-winning Rami Malek in the title role. The title role? Well, I guess it's all about Queen, so... He's... It was
1: originally called Friday Mercury. Is that what it
2: was called originally? Originally, Okay, yes. why don't you take us through some of the backstory, because this was a Trouble production.
1: Yeah, so um, this movie essentially started with... Peter Morgan. Um, Peter Morgan is probably best known now for uh, Netflix's uh, The Crown but he also wrote The Queen, The Iron Lady, The Damned United. He very much works producing pop culture pieces on important people in British history with the definitive article in the title. So uh, he was kind of working on this for a while and brought it to a producer, Graham King, who was Scorsese's guy kind of in, basically since Gangs of New York, he won a an Oscar for The Departed in 06. And then he was kind of working on this and then Sasha Baron Cohen got attached to the project, said that he was going to play Freddie Mercury. There's a bit of a kind of... No one's 100% certain whether he just declared that he was playing Freddie Mercury before he was actually cast as Freddie Mercury. But um, he got attached to the project... Um, and tried to like shop it around to directors. Um, A favourite of yours, he tried to get David Fincher to direct this at one stage.
2: I can't imagine what a David Fincher Queen biopic would look like.
1: His list was David Fincher and Tom Hooper of The King's Speech, which is... Sounds more like Tom Hooper territory. It's it's Tom Hooper territory. Um, (laughs) The first kind of road bump that this movie kind of came into was that they... Sacha Baron Cohen and, to an extent, Peter Morgan wanted to make like a kind of warts and all... Um, a 15 to 18s movie dealing with kind of the bacchanalia of Queen and particularly Freddie Mercury Um, Roger Taylor and Brian May weren't so plussed with this and they kind of had to play ball because like if you want to make a movie about Queen you need to have Queen songs and if you want to have Queen songs you need to have the blessing uh, the blessing of Brian May so eventually Sasha Baron Cohen wasn't just going to happen and he dropped off the project Um, then a couple of years later Dexter Fletcher who ended up kind of being parachuted in was attached to it with Ben Wishaw, also known as Paddington um, due to play Freddie Mercury Still haven't watched it David I will watch it (laughs) There must be a tenuous uh, music link in there somewhere sure there is It actually has a a full song and dance number at the end of the second one Okay I'll get to them I promise Um, He also wanted to do an R-rated film That didn't happen. Um, Fast forward a little bit. uh, The movie was originally at Sony. Then under the guideship of Amy Pascal. Then the North Korea hacking uh, happened. What a saga. She gets dropped out. It moves over to uh, 20th Century Fox. And Fox kind of have a thing where they've got their guys. So they have people that do a lot of work with them. One of who was Brian Singer has had immense success with the X-Men franchise. So they were basically like, Brian May and Fox were like, we want you, Brian Singer. He's like, I can get this off the ground. And then you get the production that started and then obviously
2: Collapse. had some issues. Massive issues, yeah. I mean, some of which we can't quite go into for legal reasons, but everyone's kind of been reading up on it, essentially. Production shut down amidst reports of Brian Singer uh, behaving quite unprofessionally on set, not turning up for uh, days at a time and getting into uh, particularly, I guess, visible shouting matches with Rami Malek among
1: others, supposedly. Um, there was talk of electrical equipment being thrown. Is that correct?
2: There was there also was- talk that he had like some kind of family problems and that thus he would be taking some gardening leave. Uh, he left the project, never to return. Dexter Fletcher was parachuted in. He finished it, by all accounts, a much more harmonious set. And, of course, uh, Bryan Singer, in recent months, Many allegations have been made about him, which, again, one of those kind of open secret in Hollywood things. It would appear that he's persona non grata for some time, to the extent that, during the awards, and we'll get to the awards, uh, the award campaign for this movie, which has been quite successful, he would say, Golden Globes, Oscars, and kind of Independent Spirit Awards or whatever, nobody has mentioned him by name. No one has thanked him in any speeches. No one has said a positive word about him. It's as if he was a ghost.
1: Yeah, I can't take credit for this joke, but someone said that Bohemian Rhapsody... Got the award for best editing for editing Brian Singer out of their PR campaign. So kudos to them. Um, But yeah, this has gone on to win an insane amount of awards, Um, particularly Rami Malek. Uh, It's got two awards for sound editing that have kind of muffled a few people within that industry. Um, It's probably a time to look at the Oscars at large before we jump into... Yeah, did you watch it? I didn't watch it. I didn't watch it. Like, I mean, who's, who's staying up till whatever, five in the morning to, to watch this. You kind of get the highlights in the morning. Um, overall, what did you think of... Well, going
2: into the Oscars, I didn't think it was a particularly good field, and that kind of came out of it fairly strong. I mean, like, Black Klansman won best adapted screenplay for a script that I think is garbage. Yeah, uh,
1: we, I think we are two people out on an island where... It's a terrible film. It, yeah, it d- didn't, didn't work for me it's at really all. It's really bad. I think a lot of what I... My ire towards it is just kind of the the final third. Like, it's it's super baggy. Like it, it ne- I never found it to be that funny. It never really had the uh, dramatic ticks. Maybe after the kind of the brief Corey Hawkins, not so much cameo. The scene where he's that was a good that speech. scene, yeah. Like there, there was some power in that, and I was like, oh, maybe there's something here. But as it kind of it dragged on, um, yeah, I just wasn't wasn't feeling it. It kind of very very loose film, and then yeah, that ending. student ending. The ending is terrible. What else? Uh, Green Book 1, which I haven't seen. It looks like
2: Driving Miss Daisy 2, and a lot of people are pissed off about it.
1: I have watched Green Book. I went into it thinking I would hate it. I don't hate it, but like... Best film? Like, at best, it's fine. And, you know, the elements that I liked about it were essentially, you know, I really like planes, trains, and automobiles, and it's just like, it's just simple, odd couple. But then, obviously, there's just terrible mishandlings of uh, racial issues where, you know, essentially uh, Vigo Mortensen's character is showing uh, <laughs> Marish Ali how to be black by, you know, getting to eat fried chicken and listen to Little Richard. It's kind of astonishing. It's an incredibly toned deaf film. It's kind
2: of astonishing that not only is this, like, you know, a success, a family
1: Sunday movie, but it's the best picture of the year. I mean, I guess that kind of feeds into, like the Oscars the way preferential balloting works mm. where it's like people probably thought it was fine and you know people who say voted for I don't know what, what was a film that people probably were very unlikely to vote for say people were like all in on the favourite and then they might have been like oh yeah I'll get my number two or number three to green, green Book, book yeah. and it gets eliminated um, Real
2: Choice Music Prize style situation I must say uh, the favourite I watched it a couple of days ago as of this uh, as of this podcast recording uh Here's Dave's hot take. It's only alright. It's three out of five, and I found Olivia Colman's performance to be quite irritating. Really, she's fucking whales for two hours, and also that has a student film ending as well. That final shot, the one that drags on like a Steve McQueen movie, I found myself sitting there being like, "Boy, this is going on, isn't it?" I get the point, Yorgos, but Jesus Christ. And then I was like, I wonder where this is leading. And then it comes up, The (laughs) Favourite. I was like, are you fucking joking? Uh, You know, good performances generally. Olivia Colman, when she's not screaming, is of course good because she's a great actor. Uh, But generally, I didn't care. Didn't care about it.
1: Didn't connect to it whatsoever. I thought it was immaculate across the board. I thought it was quite plotless. performances. Um, It looked stunning. Our own Robbie Ryan. Doing, doing the Lord's work in cinematography. Oh, look great! Uh, um, all those shots. Set of, design was amazing. All those shots of horse
2: riding were, were wonderful. But I just generally found it really boring. Um, what else we got here in the Oscars? Uh, what else happened? Um, I guess Regina King won for If Beale, Beale Street Could
1: Talk. Didn't see that. You're, didn't see it. Uh, <sighs> I saw that. It's that probably was my favorite out of the field of films. Um, surprisingly, she's amazing in it. Uh, would have liked to seen Kiki Lane. In there for Best Actress. Her performance is amazing. Someone just you've never seen before. And immediately you're like, more of that please. Like, she just goes from like the most timid person in the world to just like ferocity that you just wouldn't believe. Sam Elliott not winning for
2: Star is Born will haunt my dreams. Uh, Much like him backing out of the driveway in that scene. (laughs) Also, uh, Shallow, of course, won for Best Song. A song that is trash and I don't understand the love for it. But it's interesting because The Star Is Born was a film that I didn't really warm to too much. I thought it was very overwrought. Um, it is a weepy, I guess, but I thought I had TV movie sensibility. However, I think when compared to Bohemian Rhapsody, it's fucking Citizen Kane.
1: Oh, absolutely. And like, I think, you know, won't jump into to Rami's performance just yet, but like, all that Bradley Cooper did in that film, and again, like, I'm, I'm with you. I thought it is good, The Star Is Born. Um, I think, I'm not the first person to say that the first... Hour is exceptional, and then it kind of falls off for me. But like, like that's a great performance from Bradley Cooper. I think it's um, pretty strong. Yeah, and also, what did you think of their performance last night? Actually, I didn't watch it. Did you not? I
2: hate the song. <sighs> I can't it's really good. To I it.
1: have to say, like, fair play to him for like getting up there and doing it because he was snubbed as the actor, and obviously he was never going to win as director. No, not necessarily that. It's just like I imagine that doing that is terrifying when you're not naturally a singer. Like, yeah. you know, some of the other categories. um you know, Tim Blake Nelson didn't get up there and do the uh, When an Angel Gets His Spurs and Emily Blunt didn't get up to do the song from uh, Mary, Poppins? Mary Poppins Returns. And uh, Kendrick and SZA weren't there. No, but uh, he kind of has seems to be just shying away from award ceremonies in general. A much better I, song, should have won. Um, I, I guess agree it's a better song, but I think like... That song in the context of the movie is just like it's over the end credits. I don't care. While like "Shallow" is the foundation of "A Star Is Born" for me, so like I'm I was happy for it to win because it is the emotional high point of that film. Yeah, I do Although, think
2: I do think Lady Gaga was genuinely brilliant in that film and should have won.
1: I will say about "Shallow" though that my first experience of it because I didn't I didn't see "A Star Is Born" until maybe oh, I think like January. Like I missed it on the on the first run, so my first exposure to uh to shallow was there's a very good film critic David Ehrlich does it an end of year uh, oh yeah yeah editing of videos yeah. and they're great basically the crescendo of shallow was intercut with the halo jump from Mission Impossible Fallout so I kind of feel like that was excellent I was yeah. cheated That was good
2: <laughs> okay let, let's stop dancing around this one shall we uh, four time Academy Award winner Bohemian Rhapsody it's time to click into it so. Where do we start, is the question. So the film is finally made. It's a massive hit. It's huge. It's colossal. People love it. It's terrible. <laughs> like It's it's unfathomably bad. It really is. And like, let, like let, let's not undersell this, because I watched it, right? And I found myself... Uh, you and I went to see a film called Molly's Game once, which is Aaron Sorkin's directorial debut. And Aaron Sorkin is your classic kind of like, when he's good, he's good. When he's bad, he's particularly bad. Yes. So that's his directorial debut, and we were like, what are we in for here? And the opening sequence of that movie nearly gave us both this fucking seizure. Because it was pure uncut Sorkin, like, in terms of just like speed ramp dialogue and insane camera cuts every five seconds. I was like, what the hell is happening? That's Bohemian Rhapsody for two hours and, what, 12 minutes or whatever it is.
1: There is no, there's no filter on, on this film. Um, this is a film that won an editing award, but doesn't seem to have been...
2: Edited, really? Yeah, I think like, um,
1: uh, Don uh, Clark of the Irish Times made a good point when he said that a lot of people who win for
2: editing win for most editing, not best editing. And there's a clip doing the rounds, as of this recording, where it's a hilarious clip where they go and meet Aidan Gillen and we will get to him. And they're basically told, here's your record deal and you're going to be the biggest band in the world. And in that, like, minute-long clip, there are 50 cuts. It's Liam Neeson scaling a fucking fence and taking three. It's just unbelievable. There's a bit where he, like, pulls up a chair and you get a cut to the chair. <laughs> like, why? It's building, uh, building drama. Um, I mean, I guess they had a lot of ground to cover, of course. That's what biopics do. And, you know, you're dealing with a band that are still going, despite, obviously, Freddie Mercury's death a long
1: time ago. You have a lot of things to do. But... Do they cover a lot of ground, though? Because there's a little bit of an element. It reminded me of... Have you ever seen the Pearl Jam documentary? Oh, the Cameron Crowe one? Yeah. Yeah. Um and I guess it's probably like 20 minutes in, Eddie Vedder joins the band, and he's just like, oh, so Eddie joined on Tuesday, and it's just like, then Thursday, we just wrote and recorded live, and then we're the biggest band in the world. <laughs> I don't know why I'm doing a slightly British accent <laughs> for that, but like, there was that element to Bohemian Rhapsody, where it's just like, he joins, um, he joins Smile, gives an impromptu uh, performance out the back of a pub, and which, like, oh.
2: in which he uh, has a problem with a microphone stand,
1: and thus his particular signature microphone stand movement was born. Oh, very clever. Yeah. Um, but then they go into the studio, and the, and the way, like, I think the, the, the one of the biggest things of this movie is the the way the, they show the creation of, of music. And the first time in the studio, and I, I can't remember the song that they're recording, and it's essentially the way it's shot and the way it's edited and the way that they... The, the grandiose nature of it all is like I think these guys just actually invented music itself It was like they're doing things in the studio And the, the engineer's just like I've never seen this before <laughs>
2: <laughs> Which is also like weird Because like they've gone to the studio And they're obviously spending money to be there And they've X amount of time to go in You go in with music You go in with songs that you've made and You go
1: in with a song And you're like let's record let's this song And the, no, he's just like no we're getting an album <laughs> We're knocking an album out in a night
2: Yeah, I mean, that is a huge problem in the film where every time they write one of their big songs, it it happens on the spot. And it usually happens to diffuse an argument or something. So let's just take a quick listen to the formation of one of their biggest songs. Stamp to this beat.
1: Come on. Now, I want you to clap on the third beat.
2: What's going on? You know if you're on time. I want to give the audience
0: a song that they can perform.
2: So what can they do? Imagine thousands of people doing this in Newton. Huh? Well, what's the lyric? So there you go. Brian May just wants people to have something to sing and stomp along with, you know? What's the lyric going to (laughs) be? And I mean, that's what it's like, though. Like, that's how these songs happen in this film. And you're led to believe that it was just this, like, incredible epiphany in the studio. And it's like, oh, great, cool. Turn on the recorder, you know? And then it cuts to, of course, it cuts to them doing the song in front of hundreds of thousands of people. Which, by the way, that was another thing I had. I had the sense of scale and atmosphere and place in this movie is all over the gaff. Because, like, it appears, like, it shows them on an American tour. And it just has a thing where, like, or even a world tour later on, where it just has like the names of cities in 70s kind of blockbuster credit intro font flying over the camera. And what it does is, it just shows you Queen playing in this kind of box room with a black backdrop. soundstage in England somewhere. Yeah. It's there's no sense of like, well, they're like, that's something A Star Is Born actually did pretty well because they fucking went to Glastonbury like and they, you know, they actually did things where they were like, cool, I believe right now that Bradley Cooper is walking out in front of 80,000 people in a massive field in England. But this is just like, you can tell that they would have shot, you know, Queen playing in their entire American tour in one day with the same extras. It's really badly laid out. It's really badly.
1: You don't get a sense of being there at all. So this movie cost $55 million, which is like it's not an insane budget in the, in the modern day of, you know, 200 million on a blockbuster. But I don't know where any of this money went, mm. apart from like some pretty bad CGI for the uh, crowd games, live aid yeah. and the, the, the show in Rio ended. that essentially looks like they're playing to a crowd bigger than Helm's Deep.
2: <laughs> yeah, the film book ended by the live aid performance and I guess that's what's kind of winning the editing and winning the, the 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 pomp and circumstance because Malik's impersonation, the whole impersonation, they did recreate it beat for beat. Again, we'll get there. I think in terms of the way this mo- this movie moves with a chronology, it moves at a clip to the point where like it 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 ticks off every cliché imaginable. I mean, Freddy's this extroverted character, his parents are traditionalists. Um but all of a sudden like it's like here's the band, we're in the band and then it's like okay, And then they're like, he's on the phone to someone being like, what? You're giving us a record deal? And you're like, where is the
1: sense of like, you know, struggle or like hardships or even just graft? I mean, everything seems to just be delivered to them like overnight. Mm. Um, And the only pushback they get is, you know, this fictitious label exec who's listening to Bohemian Rhapsody. Played by Mike Myers. Played by Mike Myers in a wink, wink, nudge, nudge, looking like a kind of like... Ginger Danny McBride. Oh God, it's some bad, some bad makeup.
2: No, he looks like a rejected Austin Powers character. <laughs> and of course, you know, he's the guy with a weird, like I guess Scottish accent or something. I thought it was
1: Welsh. Union? I don't know. I <laughs> didn't know where he was going. I thought it was like there was a bit of Peter Kay in him. I mean, this is this is a movie of silly accents. It really is. And Aidan Gillen's right there at the forefront.
2: Um, I mean, so th- yeah, that sequence eventually happens where like they're they're starting to believe their own hype. And they basically like present Bohemian Rhapsody, the song to Mike Myers, who of course is like, "This will never work. Go with this one." And like all the scenes are constructed to be this kind of thing where, you know, there's a narrative beat contained within everything. There's no moments of breath for the characters. I mean, there are there aren't really any characters like Lucy Boynton's character, who's his wife, who obviously you know he. There's a bizarre moment where I think this guy's played by fucking Adam Lambert, where Freddie's on the phone. Oh, a, and
1: he's at a truck stop. He's an American and truck stop. I want to tell you a little bit about filmmaking, David. <laughs> so, have you ever seen the movie Munich? Steven, Steven Spielberg's Munich. It's all in the cinema. Yeah, so he opens that movie. And to let you know, you know, you're going to see a movie called Munich, but he opens it with a sign that says Munich. So you know you're in Munich. The work of, you know, a classic filmmaker. Uh, Freddie Mercury's at a truck stop, which isn't <laughs> denoted by uh, trucks and a payphone, but which also has truck stop written in enormous letters on the wall, just in case you didn't notice. And there's a
2: gentleman who walks by while he's on the phone to his wife and this guy gives him a suggestive meet me in the bathroom look. And Freddie looks confused. Dun-dun-dun! But he goes in anyway.
1: Yeah. Cheats his wife, with a man. So, one of the things, I mean, with this being very PG-13, is that, like, and... Some people have said this is a borderline homophobic movie because it like it just cuts the edges off absolutely everything about Freddie Mercury. It sanitizes everything. It 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 almost it's almost like they're ashamed. Oh yeah, it's it's
2: it. almost apologetic. I mean, it wasn't quite the whitewashing of this that I thought it might be. In as much as they do present it, they do show you like, oh yeah, he had a relationship with that guy, or he fell in love with that guy, and he's and like, I think even like the wife character is like, Freddie, you're gay. Like, you know, they don't shy away from it in as much as it is admitted to, but it feels admitted to. It feels like, well, we, we have to mention this. We'd rather not, but we have to. Because it's not even like a straight up biopic in the sense that like, well, I guess it is, but like it builds towards like the crescendo of live aid. His death isn't even presented on screen.
1: No. Um. Did you know that originally, I think it was when Sasha Baron Cohen was was talking to Brian May about it. And he's like, it's going to be a brilliant movie. It's just like, halfway through the movie, like, Freddie dies. And Sasha Baron Cohen was like, w- like, what? Well, then what happens? It's like, well, then the next half is just like us, you know, regrouping, battling on. It's like, nobody wants to see that film. <laughs> Brian May does. Brian May <laughs> Roger does, Roger Taylor yeah. <laughs> does.
2: I guess John Deacon might, but I don't know because his characterization in this film is non-existent. Uh, but Queen are, they are like Freddie Mercury's Merry Men in this movie. And they they clearly, like, get moments where the genius of Queen is spread equally in many ways. Freddie is definitely this alien figure who no one can quite make sense of. Uh, there's a hilarious moment where, you know, once, you know, riches are kind of piling in and the lads, like, have wives and kids and shit, where, like, Roger Taylor goes to Freddie Mercury's gaff. And, like, Freddie Mercury is, like, essentially alone in this opulent mansion. He's a bit of a Harold Hughes type uh, in certain scenes when the script needs him to be. And then on stage it's like Freddie Mercury's like you must you simply must stay Roger we'll we'll have a party it'd be amazing and Roger Taylor's like oh, i can't mate you know like um wife, the wife of kids the wife and kids <laughs> basically non gay things you know <laughs> have to go and do those uh it's strange cuz i never i never got the sense that they were a band i never got the sense that they were friends i never got the sense that they worked together
1: yeah there's there's nothing in it that there's no camaraderie um like there's, there's four it, lads they're dre- four lads dressed up as queen um like even even when he, he tells them that he has AIDS, which is that scene is... is an absolute jaw dropper. It's so bad.
2: <laughs> Let's have a listen to it. Before you leave.
0: Could I have a second? Yeah. What's up? I've got it. Got what? AIDS. I wanted you to hear it from me. Fred, I'm so sorry. Brian, stop. Don't. But right now, it's between us, all right? Just us. So please, if any of you fuss about it or frown about it, or worst of all, if you bore me with your sympathy, that's just seconds wasted seconds that could be used making music, which is all I want to do with the time I have left. I don't have time to be their victim, their AIDS poster boy, their cautionary tale. No, I decide who I am. I'm going to be what I was born to be,
2: a performer who gives the people what they want. And I apologise for, like, jumping around here as if we have no map, but the film, with the exception of playing chronologically, because it must, that the film, like, is just barrages you with, like, scenes that, like, don't have a connection to each other and just, like, burst, 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 burst. So as regards that one, though, where Freddy gives the big reveal as they're basically in training for
1: Live Aid. It's, like, a couple of weeks before Live Aid. And in, in our defence, this movie takes massive liberties with, you know, when things actually happened. Um, so this particular incident... Um, where Freddie decides to tell um, the rest of the band members that he has AIDS. Didn't happen before Live Aid. Uh, he didn't find out apparently until 1987. Live Aid was 1985. This is And very... he apparently didn't tell the band until 1989, two years before he died. So they've all, uh, at this point, they've, they've set up faux. Fo- because there's no, as we said earlier, like th- this movie, there's no. Um, their success just comes to them immediately, so there's no there's no conflict at all. There's no so stakes. They have, to, they have to create conflict. There's no stakes, like the conflict of Freddie leaving the band because he wants to record a solo album, which he did. But um, didn't Roger Taylor record one before? And him? Brian May had recorded one, so they they make it out to be like, oh, Freddie's left the band. And he's gone to Munich to make his record. Um, when that never happened, you know. Well, he did go to record the record, but th- there was never a split. They were touring the year before. It's like it's. It's so fabricated. Um, Yeah. There's even a
2: scene where, like, Freddie Mercury basically has to grovel to get back in their good graces, which you presume, like, Roger, Taylor and Brian May May were like, put this in here. This has to be in there. You know, he was human. I was going to say, like, you know, the the narrative stretching and, like, making stuff up wholesale and or moving the goalposts so hard that they don't make sense. It's like Hulk Hogan shit. It's like Hulk Hogan, like, you know, I slammed Andre the Giant and then three days later he was dead. And it's like, well, that's not what happened. No, not at
1: all. Is is there anything that you did like about this movie? Because like, I like laughing at it. Yeah, I like laughing at it. I mean, obviously, like Queen songs are good. It's a pretty loud movie. Like, but that's that weird seems as to well. Be the extent of that's weird saying.
2: though because like, I mean, like they kind of superimpose the Queen songs in. It's Rami Malek is effectively lip syncing. He lip syncing.
1: Yeah, I am not buying this. He sang and then we did the mix. Because if they did the mix, it's like he's on zero and Freddie's on a hundred. And again, don't get me wrong. Like and. Understandably, Yeah, it's
2: Freddie Mercury. It's Freddie Mercury, yeah. So, okay, well, I guess real quick on that one. I mean, Queen are one of those bands where, like, I would never sit down and listen to Queen. Uh, Even on the way over here, I was listening to some Queen to get in the mood. And then I turned it off after, like, I listened to Bohemian Rhapsody, which I think is a phenomenal song. Like, it is a genuine work of art. I mean, no matter how often you've heard it, it's just brilliant. Um, I think, and I do find it very interesting that, like, with Freddie Mercury, tough lads, quote-unquote, you know, seem to accept him greatest frontman of all time debate is often, like, open and shut, Freddie Mercury. No one really fights too hard against it. And I think, ultimately, he was genuinely one of a kind. He was genuinely incredible. That is not up for debate. Vocally, the way he moved, the way he looked, the way he commanded a stage. And thus, it would be very tough for any actor, I think, to come into this role and come out of this with any kind of merit uh, if anything, I think Ryan Malik has come out with too much merit. And as regards, you know, the vocals, don't give me, if he couldn't do it, and how could he? It makes sense. But then you have this weird thing where you're like, well, wh- I'm watching an episode of Top of the Pops. What like, is this
1: movie? No, even maybe a, it more for? of an extension of Top of the Pops. It's like, this is the lip sync battleification of, <laughs> you know, biopic movies.
2: Yeah, that is strange. Was it you was telling me that, like, John Krasinski and Emily Blunt hold the patent for that?
1: And Stephen Merchant, yeah, it's so, so strange. I can't, I can't remember who. I think Merchant, I think Emily Blunt and Krasinski were going on Fallon. Yeah, and Fallon likes his bits. Everyone, he loves his he bits. He loves his bits. Yeah, get those virals. If
2: Freddie Mercury was live right now, he'd be doing bits. <sighs> That's depressing, isn't it? Yeah, Jimmy Fallon banging the table.
1: <laughs> so yeah, they uh, they went to Merchant. They they came up with the idea. So like, good for them. That's amazing. Getting that. A Quiet Place money, getting that... Uh, makes sense, yeah. think panel money.
2: Power of players in Hollywood
1: because of a talk show. What I, what I wanted to say just about... Um, this is like... It's such a workman-like film. That's a great word for it is by the number, so... You... Not a fan of Brian Singer. No. As uh, a person, as a filmmaker. Well, obviously <laughs> as a person, no. And as a
2: filmmaker... No, as a filmmaker, I think almost never. I think he's one of the greyest filmmakers there's ever been. Usual Suspects, to me, feels like such a can't-miss script...
1: And yeah, I mean a lot. And don't get
2: me wrong, like let's—he directed it well, obviously. He did it, direct it it's, well. It's but, economical, but like shouts to Christopher McQuarrie, yeah, who seems like a stand-up dude and a great writer. And obviously, you know, he's he's locked into one of our favorite franchises, so that's good. But like going through his filmography, generally, I mean, X Men Two is pretty good. I think that's generally accepted. But the X Men movies generally have this kind of weird flat tone to them. Uh, App pupil was a real VHS rental that I don't recall much about outside of the performances. You know, RIP Brad Renfro. Uh, what else we got? What else have you done? I never saw Valkyrie. Superman Returns? That's a terrible film. Jack the Giant Slayer, which I have not seen. Didn't go near it. Um, Superman Returns is, like, I remember seeing that late night back in the day when, like, you know, Half Eleven Jones were a thing. And man, that was tough. That was a difficult watch. Valkyrie didn't go near it. What has he done before Behemoth Rhapsody?
1: Um, that wasn't Jack the Giant Oh, he did X-Men Apocalypse, which is probably the worst of the bunch. That's a terrible film. That's really Bored bad. Borderline unwatchable.
2: Yeah, it's it's shockingly bad. I mean, it's good for Oscar Isaac's ridiculous
1: performance, but... One of the things that I was just going to touch on about how kind of workmanlike and flat he is is that he, he has his he has his guys who he works with. Like, he all his films are same cinematographer, uh, Newton Thomas Siegel, who I don't really recall, like, seeing about as like his name pops up and other stuff I'm watching, like the, the most creative shot in this film is just like, well, what if in this scene, Freddie was wearing some aviators and then it's the person he's talking to, <laughs> <laughs> it's like three or four times. It's like, really? Is this is this what we've come to? Not only that, but like I thought this film looked terrible. I it, it really, really did. And it, it, there's no, I I I think I just mentioned, I just watched If Field Street Could Talk, probably a fraction of the budget, a period film but Barry Jenkins like has recreated parts of Brooklyn like so lovingly, and it feels alive. It feels tactile. It feels sensual. And then you have scenes in uh, Bohemian Rhapsody, like the the one the insane cut scene where they're just at a pub, which I'm assuming probably still exists or some pub like it still exists in <laughs> London. But you can tell it's on a soundstage because the sky looks like like milk. Yeah, it really looks gross. Okay, we can't
2: contrast the visuals in this audio clip I'm going to play but I do want you to imagine that every time someone speaks there's a reaction shot and then multiply that number by two but also I think this will give you an example of just the back and forth and it will also crucially introduce Aidan Gill to proceedings so this is when they sign their big deal so this is Queen and you must be Freddie Mercury you've got a gift
0: you all have so tell me what makes Queen any different from all of the other
2: Wannabe rock stars I meet.
0: I'll tell you what it is. We're four misfits who don't belong together playing to the other misfits. The outcasts right at the back of the room who are pretty sure they don't belong either. We belong to them. We're a family.
2: So to me, Aidan Gillen, both in how he looks and how he sounds and what he is in the scene, I'm like, that man is going to play Terry Wogan. Oh, wow. That's what he's doing, right? What is he doing if he's not doing that? I don't think he has the nuance for Wogan. He doesn't have the nuance for much. I mean, he's an interesting case, isn't he, Gillen?
1: Yeah, like he—he he seems to just be degenerating as an actor. <laughs> like, like I'm, I've been rewatching uh, The Wire, okay. and I—I kind of held off on it for a while because I, I watched it years ago. I don't want to be that person who's like, "Oh, watch The word for everyone else." Hey, got me the, too, man. Got those Region One DVDs? I did. Um, but I was like. Is did am I gonna go back and is like is Gillen bad in the war? But I remember him being really really good. And when I found out it was Irish, I was like, holy crap, didn't know. Um, he is good, generally good in that. And I like early seasons of Game of Thrones. I remember him being fine. I saw I think him it was love hate when I was like,
2: I saw him in Queer as Folk back in the day, and I yes. thought he was really good. And I think he's perfectly fine in early seasons of Game of Thrones. I think he's good in the war, but generally, it's it's almost like he's got this weird thing where he's daring the maker of whatever project he's on to fire him or kill him off because he shows up and it's like, hello! And it's like, okay, right. I mean, like, what is this? What are you doing? Why is there a goblin in Bohemian Rhapsody? It's bizarre. And he's also like a good guy who kind of gets screwed over. Like, what's his big... His exiting of the movie is he tries to push Freddie Mercury to go solo and kind of gets stabbed in the back by his uh, right-hand man slash Freddie Mercury. Oh, Alan
1: Alan Leach's character. uh, Paul
2: Paul Prenter. Who was Freddie's lover apparently, and in this film is presented as a very needy girlfriend type, yes. who kind of gaslights Freddie Mercury a lot, and ultimately wants control. And even like the time, like they kind of have a kiss in the studio, like a stolen kiss at midnight, and again, chased as fuck. Like lads, <laughs>
1: yeah. commit to it for fuck's sake!
2: <laughs> Don't they look like they're terrified of each other? Not,
1: nothing in the uh, nothing in the framing to to kind of make it in any way sensual it's just like nice medium shot get in there give him a smack on the lips get In and the then a Yeah. also sorry on. to
2: go back to that scene that we heard there I mean like that really is the mechanics and the motor of the film in terms of how people talk to each other nothing feels like a natural conversation nothing feels like a, an actual uh, back and forth between mates it's all uh, people sounding wide eyed and awestruck at all times until they get a bit of success and even then the cadence of their speeches don't really change they're just delivering lines. It's just people in rooms delivering lines.
1: And it's it, it borders on 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 fantasy lines. Like this got originally was Peter Morgan and then went to Anthony McCartan who wrote um the Churchill Biopic, The Dark Star, and he wrote the um Stephen Hawkins one. So again, like very workman like mm. uh, scripts. I haven't I no interest in the Churchill film, but like it it apparently has some pretty clunky clunky dialogue scenes like this one has some real bad ones where it's just like h- how do you get from point A to point B and it's like oh we've we've got no money to make an album and it's like oh we sh- we, sh- oh, we should sell sell the van or oh, we couldn't sell for much and then it's just like oh really <laughs> <laughs> and it's like smash crush dun, dun, dun. <laughs>
2: man, 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 man. which by the way the construction of that song uh, Another One by The Dust is they're having a bust up in the studio And they're having like a typical, like, oh, Freddie, you're too flamboyant. Uh, We just want to get the work done. And then John Deacon, who gets, again, nothing to do in this film, is played by Joseph Mazzello of Jurassic Park fame and The Social Network and Justified, season four, I want to say. There you go. Uh, Mazzello Wikipedia page over here. He just frustratedly starts playing the bass line to another one by The Dust and the lads stop rowing and go, it's pretty good, isn't it? It's bloody good. What's that? And then what's the lyric going to be? And it's just like, what is this? it it doesn't make sense as a film it doesn't make sense as a narrative it takes all the joy out of it which is why I'm really shocked don't get me wrong the masses you know and their popcorn movies this is a popcorn movie
1: this is an immensely like but I think how the, could the, you, the term being bandied around between it and Green Book is like it's a crowd pleaser but how is
2: it a crowd pleaser it's so fucking boring
1: yeah, like I I've I know people who have liked it and I'm like what 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 did What's you like about it? Like I could get at a very very simple level. It's just like if you really like Queen and you get to go to a cinema and sit down and hear Queen songs loud but like just go to the We Will Rock You musical. If that's if that's what you need, like Queen are still around. Like I I don't know what you're getting about Freddie Mercury's life. Like he's such an, an interesting person. Um it like pretty much just Jumps over the fact that, you know, from Zanzibar uh, of Parsi Indian Extraction, like, it doesn't delve into, like, what it's like to be an immigrant in, like, 70s. Like, there's a couple of racial slurs at the very start of the movie, and then that's that.
2: Which is bizarre. Like, there's a bit where the film turns into Green Street for a second. And I think, like, some guy in the crowd at their first gig is like, who's the packy? Or something like that. And it's like, oh, Great. Good characterization going on here, which is not to say I'm sure, of course, Freddie Mercury, I'm sure, experienced some horrific, um, things. Sl- things, but arrows. it
1: doesn't really show you that, and it doesn't show you in any way how he would have internalised it. it. Yeah. Um, and then it does come full circle with the not to jump too far into the, the live age show, but um, you see groups of people in pubs watching it and it's like the most multicultural Britain you could see in 1980s London. Yeah, it's, it's, like, a, like, oh, it's like a United colours <laughs> like, of like Green Land. Street Dilligans, yeah. as you said like standing side by side just like, ah, oh, Freddie, there's that boy. Yeah, there
2: are lads who look at they're going to like a Rook in like This Is England and they're like we're, we're cheering on the flamboyant gay man now as he rocks the stadium. And I kind of I remember watching it I turned to my housemate and I was like I don't buy this. I don't buy the people who were in pubs watching Live Aid. Apparently they were. Um,
1: but like Generally, even the sense of do you buy that no one was calling into Live Aid to give them any money until Queen played? <laughs> That's hilarious. There's a guy playing Bob Geldof.
2: Uh, looks the part, to be fair to he him. He does look
1: the part. Yeah, he does. Irish actor, I believe. Uh, Dylan
2: Murphy, I think, is his name. And Dermot Murphy. Dermot Murphy. Okay, I apologize to both him and Bob <laughs> Geldof. But yeah, there's a bit where basically like the phones aren't ringing. You know, no one's no one's giving Live Aid any cash. Until Queen start playing, and then all the phones start ringing, and it's like fantastic, like Simpsons Telethon moment. Um, and also, isn't there the weird thing where like no one, no one knows what Live Aid is? Freddie Mercury somehow has no idea what Live Aid is. Uh, it's being,
1: it's being held from him by your man Paul Printer. He was in Munich, David. He was cut off from the world in far <laughs> distant Bavarian Black Forest Munich. Yeah, he was having sexy
2: parties that we don't get to see anything occurring in. Uh, There's also a strange kind of through line with him and his relationship with his wife, which is meant to be the great love of his life, and perhaps was. But, like, there's a bizarre moment where, I guess to show how isolated he is now and how lonely he is, he installs her in a house next to his... Yeah. And then rings her up on the telephone and is like, turn on the light and I'll turn on my light and we can, and I'm like, hang on. Have I'm like, champagne? I'm like, is this it, like, since when is I'm like, playing Michael Jackson? Like, this is very odd. There's
1: no real explanation. There's no, there's no scene where like, uh, Freddie, you might be losing your mind. And that, that's the kind of thing that uh, people have kind of rallied against is that it made him seem like he was totally isolated, but from all accounts, he like, he quite enjoyed his life. Like it, it. It almost makes like it's making him feel ashamed of who he is. Well, that wasn't really the case.
2: Yeah. And again, even like with the parents, it's very much like they're rigid, particularly the dad figure, which, again, wouldn't shock me. These are all generational things that that exist in life. But it's just a cartoon. Like, these are cartoon characters. It
1: is a cartoon. And again, like the dad comes around at the end which certainly so didn't happen in real life no, 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 bollocks that's a yeah. shame
2: um yeah lots of that i mean they take a lot of liberties uh there's a lot of articles have been written about how completely not true a lot of this film is and i guess it doesn't matter i mean i guess it's poetic license and people want to go and see a film that they want to come out of the film being like that was great i feel like i was at live aid and the live aid performance you know they recreate it they go beat for beat I didn't need the PlayStation 2 football crowd.
1: No, I don't. And I re rewatched the, the actual performance today. Mm. And I don't know, apart from it being in a cinema and it being louder, what you're getting from that. Like, you're you're, you're essentially just watching someone, like, you know, like vamp around the stage for a while. Like, but there's even... And it's, there's, no, there's nothing there. But they're
2: bringing it back into cinemas for, like, sing-alongs. And I'm like, there aren't that many moments to sing along. Because oh, like I think there's lo-
1: like this movie Do you movie, think there's loads? There's a needle drop like every yeah, but, every few minutes. But they only
2: play about 10 seconds of the song and then it cuts to band squabble
1: 17. You know? I kind of felt like there was like 40 45% just music. I mm. know like the certainly the last uh, 15 20 minutes of live aid is just like pretty much the performance.
2: Is it during live aid by the way that we get the cut back to Mike Myers sitting in his office in the dark? Cuz the whole thing is like you're going to be known as the guy who rejected
1: Queen. I think, Even though you don't I think exist. it is in the, in the one scene, <clears throat> and again, another piece of wonderful filmmaking on, on their part where um, when they want you to know who is the primary character in a scene, there's always a large window and there's always a nice little bit of spotlight coming in through that. <laughs> and everyone's just like bathing in a nice pocket of light like it's, uh, like it's that scene in the man who wasn't there, <laughs> like in the, in the basement.
2: Talk to me about where you watch this film, I assume on the couch. I watched it on the couch. Did you feel transformed? Did you pull the curtains closed? Take, like, set me, tell me a better story than this film
1: tells me. I was told to turn down the volume a couple of times because this movie is loud. So a, na- a neighbour banging on your, on your wall? No, and then and did. And then, and then the
2: neighbour comes in and he's like, what are you watching?
1: Oh, and then he sits down and watches it with you. Yeah, and yeah. basically then I just left the door open and everyone kind of came in and we just watched, watched Freddie. <laughs> and then you're like, no, it's not a YouTube <laughs> clip. They actually recreated that. <laughs> that yeah. man's
2: name is Rami Malek.
1: Yeah. Let's talk about Rami Malek. So, Best actor. He has won Best Actor mm-hmm. at the Oscars. Um, I don't agree. I don't agree, but like some people get really they're, they're, they're knickers in a bunch about the Oscars. And to an extent, I used to, but you kind of, I don't know, you eventually just stop caring. Like, say like last year, Daniel Day-Lewis lost to Gary Oldman doesn't mean I can't enjoy Phantom Thread or when I watch Phantom Thread that I'm just like ah oh, Daniel Day-Lewis didn't win this you know did he
2: yeah for me it's more that I, th- I thought this was a very mediocre impression
1: and I'm not it, it
2: is and certainly. I'm not saying that like you know someone could do a better job Sasha Baron Cohen could have done a better job or whatever it's more that like I never felt like I wasn't watching an actor act
1: yeah and I mean in Malik's defense the material is very weak to begin with. But he doesn't do a lot with it. I think his physicality is good. I think um, his stage performances, like he was getting into it. But like the dialogue scenes, struggles, the accent was like bad. Yeah. Like I've watched a few Freddie Mercury interviews and he seemed like far more um, refined. And this was a very like boisterous Freddie Mercury that kind of had like a little bit of like Harry Enfield, Tim Nice but dim in the in the pronunciation. Yeah, do we need the teeth? I never I think I am saying very stupid here. And maybe it's just because he had a mustache and the mustache was hiding the teeth. I've <laughs> never that? really been like he's got huge teeth.
2: Yeah, nor I. Um, so when
1: in this one it's just like, Jesus, those are like they're yeah, big. Because, they're big teeth.
2: because it stands out, because it stands out like an obvious affectation. And you're like, why like is this here? Like is this do, okay, like if you're not gonna be accurate with your fucking dates and times? Must Rami Malek be anchored by fucking you know comedic teeth?
1: Yeah, and like I feel there's not there's there's not a lot for him to do in this performance because most of the I uh, so called heavy lifting is like the costumes, which are iconic, and you're like, oh, uh, Freddie Mercury's look. The moustache Do you think he grew a moustache? That didn't look like a real moustache
2: No look he tore it away every night <laughs> yeah. For sure And they were like no. I was like really? You like, imagine That's being Clint like
1: Eastwood <laughs> levels He's like Can't break your the fake moustache hey, Can like, you imagine someone being like
2: When you take this off at night now just you know, just don't rip it because you'll you'll irritate your skin, and then you know Elliot and Mister Robot will have some explaining to do <laughs> about how he's suddenly blotchy. Uh, I like Armie Malik kind of as a default. I think he's an interesting actor. Um, he's an odd looking chap in the best kind of way. You know, he's clearly like he's very distinct looking. Yeah, he's clearly like a model. You know, um, he seems like a likable guy. But I can't support this current fucking whirlwind. And I think it's I think somewhere along the way, they were like, well, it's got to be the guy doing the Freddie Mercury impression, right? He has to win all the awards because it's Freddie Mercury impression.
1: Yeah, and, like, they The Oscars love that shit. And there is an, an immense amount of goodwill towards this movie, considering, um, you know, Bryan Singer's involvement, and that, that's that been kind of brushed to the side, but... Yeah. Um, yeah, like, it, se- it seems to be being coronated off the sheer fact that it is done... They, like, they got through a Nightmare production. That they got it over the line. Like, Graham King is apparently very, very well liked in Hollywood so and he's wanted to make this movie for you know a long, long time. So like there's just like there's so much goodwill towards it. It's like that doesn't need to manifest itself in this is the best performance in a movie. Um, like I, I don't want to use the S word because I, you know it only comes around in Oscar season and to a lesser extent NBA all star voting. But like Ethan Hawke couldn't couldn't get a nomination. Wait, what
2: what is the S word? Snub. Oh, sorry. Okay, it's, I, I, it's
1: only used in a small window between <laughs> uh, the end of February and I guess December. I suppose. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I don't know. I, I, it does. Feel, like it was. I don't think it, it feels like st- politics. I yeah. don't think it was a strong uh, field. It wasn't strong for field. male actresses here. Like. no.
2: It, it benefited from that, and it benefited from being marketable and political. And again, bullshit feel good, transformative performance. How do you think they handle the moment when we realise that Freddie Mercury is ill? Oh, when he says it to the band? No, when he coughs into a tissue.
1: Oh, as Who Wants to Live Forever plays? <laughs> and, and blood And he spatter. watches a uh, news report? And blood spatters in the tissue. And we literally, it's like a news report about AIDS coughs. I might have that.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I was like, again, it's, it's like fucking Brookside levels of, you know, it's so soapy. And I never cared. I never felt weepy. I never felt sad. I never felt like, oh, man, Freddie's going down now. Cause even he doesn't care. That scene that we played earlier on when like he's like defiant and of course, look, awesome. And I heard he was defiant. I mean the, yeah, the, the and, stories and of him but it just comes across as like he's this superman who's unknowable, but in the wrong way. Because the whole point with Freddie Mercury is that he was, you know, on, on the Bowie scale of like and the Prince scale of like, are these guys human? Who are they? How did this happen? They could never have been a baggage handler at a fucking airport like he is at the start of the movie or whatever. They had to be what they were. They had to have their arc that they had in life and in doing so brought incredible joy to an incredible amount of people. But to me, if I come away from your film feeling like, number one, I didn't necessarily like or care about that guy and number two, I didn't really believe any of it, it's a bit of a fucking failure, isn't it?
1: Yeah, and just to get to, to get the back to Malik, he, we were about. Uh, Fans of Mr. Robot and like he does amazing work there being incredibly insular and having to like put a lot across just by what's on his face and like you know I know there's the the voiceover but like that approach to Freddie Mercury like to see just what's going on inside like I feel like he could do a lot of that but just isn't given an opportunity to. And we're not going to get a sequel I wouldn't think. (laughs) I wouldn't imagine unless no they're not going to do the final years. No, they won't. That would be. Uh, but again, like that's an interesting film, and like maybe that's maybe that's the kind of film that you kind of could do in a. Uh, we don't need to get Brian May involved, like the way Klaus Van Sant did with Last Days. Not saying make Last Days with Freddie Mercury, but like you could make a movie about him and not necessarily need to get the licensing. It would make, and do something completely different. It because, would make
2: uh, needle drops pretty hard.
1: But that's what I mean. Like you don't necessarily you don't need, need it. To yeah, from. yeah, totally
2: um okay so i guess wrapping up final thoughts on this on this bad boy i mean like what's its legacy um and what's it going to mean for like i think
1: its legacy is going to be tied a little bit to obviously winning at the oscars um it's going to be tied a little bit to green book and it's kind of going to be remembered as this was a year particularly when the academy was like pushing back um a lot of the older voters were just like everyone's telling us that brian singer's terrible and uh Nick Vallelonga said sent some weird tweets and this guy took his dick out, but he's just like, oh, we like these films, so... That's what matters. So, like, it, yeah, it's like borderline just like, ah, oh, all these new millennials in uh, in the academy, we're going to pick what we like. Um, <laughs> it's going to be... I feel it's going to be forgotten. Like, we're not, you know, it's been an insane success, but who's the success story out of it? Aside from Malik? like, it's not going to... It's not going to send... Brian Singer's not going to be making any more films. Um... Dexter Fletcher has a Elton John biopic, which is hilarious, we, by the way. Well, like, he he had it made before I know, Rhapsody, it, and it, he had that's it. Seems to be his thing. He made a. Have you seen Sunshine on Leith? No. So it's like a a jukebox musical all Proclaimer songs. I'm looking at you, and I can tell you probably would hate that.
2: Yeah, it, <laughs> is Dexter Fletcher is an actor that I grew up watching in like Press Gang. Is he is he a good director? He seems well liked, and a lot of yeah. people have credited him for like getting this thing over the line, basically.
1: I don't. I, like some how much this is, film is, is decent, it, but like I, I haven't seen it. But how much of this Eagle. film is his film? I mean, with I don't the think a scene. lot. They had three weeks left, right? So and it's not like
2: a fucking AI Kubrick Spielberg situation.
1: No, no, no. Like it, it was for the vast majority done, and like they they shot the live out section first. So mm. a lot of the big moments that were terrible, you can put down to. Brian Singer I will indeed uh, yeah so more coming essentially Stars Born Massive
2: this was massive we got Rocket Man. as mentioned there coming out got the dirt you guys were talking about last holy week holy fuck that Motley Crue Netflix film that looks disgusting you've read the
1: book yeah right? I read it like 10 years ago and how gross is it like I don't think I want to read it do I I can't think of a more tone deaf film to like to bring out in the current climate than this film like genuinely like disgusting um <laughs> things that they do like their treatment of women is absolutely abhorrent. they should probably be in jail and it's, it's a very it's a it's a fascinating read I, I don't know it's kind of a hard one to recommend because like you're like oh these guys are all kind of very scummy yeah and he said should be in jail but they all they all kind of narrate it themselves so like the candidness is kind of like okay at least they're saying this and you don't I like it's it's autobiographical so like I hate biographies like rock biographies that like put rock stars on a pedestal like I read one about Led Zeppelin before and it's just like I don't need this like come on but um, yeah there's not there's not a lot in there that I'd be interested about apart from like maybe Mick Mars is a slightly he's kind of one that kind of comes out okay because he seems very kind of removed from uh, the other three he had like chronic back pain that he just like struggled to get up every day and that kind of Falls into like his addiction. It's like that's kind of interesting, but like the rest of the lads just gone around being disgusting. Yeah, not so much. Okay, uh, before
2: we move on to, I believe you have a game prepared to exit the show. But before we do, do you have a general favorite performance by a
1: musician in a movie? <sighs> um, <sighs> I mean. I'm starting to rewatch Twin Peaks. So I'm just going to go for Bowie and Firewalk. <laughs> totally fair. Is Twin Peaks the return on the cards for, uh, for uh, that? Its, it's Bowie. It's yeah, Bowie. And I mean, Jesus, the whole, the whole show. <laughs> Musicians everywhere.
2: I think that would take about 18 episodes to do. And so I might leave that to Craig if Craig wants to do a side <laughs> off shoot thing. But uh, yeah, so uh, we're big fans of a podcast by the name of Blank Check with Griffin and David which is a film review podcast, which is well, we're checking out. And we're going to kind of rip them off now, aren't we?
1: They have a thing called the uh, the box office game. We're going to do a little bit of a variation on it. Going to keep it themed. So what they do is um, they'll pick a movie, uh, normally from like 10 or 15 years back, and then they'll try and guess what was in the box office that week. I'm going to do something different. Okay. Um, we've talked about how an insane success Bohemian Rhapsody is. So do you, off the top of your head, know how much money it made? I mean, Budget was fifty five million, right? Fifty five, yeah. How much money is made worldwide? Um, yeah, you can, you can, you can give me domestic, international. No you give we'll, you total. Let's go
2: the whole kit and caboodle. The whole hog. I'm gonna guess that it's made eight hundred and fifty nine million worldwide. <laughs> <laughs> eight hundred and sixty million. Oh my god, <laughs> that was a complete guess. Wow. Okay. <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm feeling. So the hype. You,
1: you know it's it's done well. Yes. Um, so we're gonna put it um, against some other movies, right? But with a caveat. Um, we're going to put its um, box office in foreign countries that are not the US against the domestic, which is like the US box office of Oscar-winning movies from the last five years. Right, okay. But this first,
2: is, This is already too complicated. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but first, uh, which made, from this year's Oscars anyway, which made more money, Bohemian Rhapsody or A Star Is Born in America? The two versus each other. A Star Is Born? No. Ooh. Three million, Bohemian Rhapsody wins it by 213 million to 210. Wow, okay, okay. Which made more money, Bohemian Rhapsody in Germany or Moonlight, Barry Jenkins' wonderful film, uh, in America?
2: Bohemian Rhapsody in Germany.
1: Um, the answer is yes. Okay. It made 33 million in Germany. Wow. Uh, Brazil, population of 209 million people. <laughs> um, did Bohemian Rhapsody make more money in Brazil than Spotlight did in America? Yes, it did not. only made twenty four million in Brazil. <laughs> I was shocked by that because I was like, I thought Queen were worldwide. Rock and Rio, yeah, man. Yeah. Rock and Rio. Jesus, how much did Spotlight make in the States? Uh, it made forty five million. It's a lot of guilt. It's a lot of guilt. It's a lot of guilt going through those doors. <laughs> um, Guillermo del Torres The Shape of Water. Um, it was quite a good success mm-hmm. in the UK. Bohemian Rhapsody was also a success. Yeah, which made more. Surely it's fucking Bohemian Rhapsody. They're from Britain. Yes. Thank God. Only by 3 million. That's 69 weird. 69 million. It actually, I was surprised. because In my head, I was like, this is going to be like Paddington Skyfall levels. <laughs> um, and we've got one more. Okay. Green Book. Right. So we're going to go... Green Book's global total (laughs) because versus Bohemian Rhapsody's Japanese total
2: (laughs) you're a fucking asshole (laughs) (laughs) that's so stupid
1: and again Green Book has made quite a bit of money okay it's been very successful it's going to probably make more here's my prediction my
2: prediction is that Green Book has made 450 million worldwide no hang on that's a lot for an indie (laughs) Sorry, more (laughs) Um, than stars. I'm throwing out ridiculous uh, money. My prediction is that Green Book has made two hundred and two million dollars worldwide, and in Japan, Bohemian Rhapsody did not make that amount of money, and thus Green Book is the winner.
1: Um, yes, Green Book is the winner, but your numbers are slightly off. One hundred and forty-four million for Green Book worldwide, and. 105 million in Japan. So it made insane amounts of money, and Bohemian Rhapsody also didn't get a release in China, which would have sent this into the billions.
2: Is that because you know they don't like gay people over there, or what's the story? They didn't like. I don't know. They didn't the film
1: way. a tenuous scene, or have like one Chinese character so they could uh, <laughs> get a release there.
2: I can't believe I thought *Green Book* made 450 million dollars worldwide. That's, I mean, it's got
1: legs now. It's got that Best Picture nomination. Um, Why well, get up there? You know, did, did, I have to. I have to tell you this. So Nick Falalonga, the the writer of... uh, Of Green Book. Of Green Book. His next movie. I need to read you the logline for this just before we finish up. So his next movie, which he will be directing also, is a musical romantic comedy about a 40-year-old bachelor who thinks his best years are behind him and who's resigned to working in his family's pizza restaurant. That is, until he meets Paddy Amore, a shy and introverted loner with an overprotective father and a dark secret in her, in her past. The two emotionally damaged people enter into a relationship. Can you tell me the name of this movie? That's Amore. Bingo. <laughs> 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 with an exclamation mark. Christ. Well, he's the guy who wrote Green Book. He wrote Green Book. So Peter his, Farrelly directed it, right? Peter Farrelly directed it. So Nick Vallelonga is the son of Tony Lip, Tony Vallelonga, who Figo Morrison plays. Oh
2: my God. Oh, stop this.
1: <laughs> I would take Bohemian Rhapsody
2: 2 over this. Over Dat Amore? Yeah, it sounds terrible. Yeah, it really does. Awful. Okay. Well, that was the first episode of No Popcorn. As noted, uh, part of the No Encore family. And so No Encore will resume regular music duties very soon, aka a couple of days after this podcast drops. David Higgins, thank you so much for coming in. It's been a pleasure. Another one bites the dust, as you might say. My name is Dave Hanradi. This has been No Popcorn. There will be no popcorn. Catch you very soon.
1: Another one bites
0: the dust. And another one gone. And Another one gone. Another one bites the dust. Hey, I'm gonna get you Another one bites the dust. Hey. This podcast is part of the Head Stuff Podcast Network. <laughs> <sighs>